Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, M. David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. As Chief Strategy Officer at Deloitte, Steve Goldbach has had a chance to observe all of the time-honored best practices at some of the biggest companies in the world. What he realized was that following best practices can be an excuse for not paying attention to what really matters. Steve's new book, Detonate, co-authored by Jeff Tuff, recommends ways to shift the executive mindset for strategic planning in a world where expectations and reality don't usually line up like numbers on a spreadsheet. In this episode of Hack the Process, Steve will tell us why it's important to bring a beginner's mind to work, how to network both inside and outside your company for mentorship, and what he's learned about writing from his three-and-a-half-year-old daughter. So today I'm talking with Steve Goldbach, and he is a Chief Strategy Officer at Deloitte, and he's also the co-author of a new book called Detonate. Steve, how are you doing today? I'm great, David. How are you doing? I'm doing great, and I'm excited to meet you. I've been reading through the pre-release version of your book, which I think just came out, and it's got a lot of interesting stuff, some of which I would associate with Deloitte and some of which I wouldn't associate with somebody from Deloitte, and it's kind of an interesting mix. One of the things that we're trying to do at Deloitte is bring lots of capabilities to our clients. So a lot of the times we find people surprised to find that something is inside Deloitte, and we've got a phrase inside Deloitte that Deloitte does that. And you know, we're not only what people most remember us for, which is a 150-year-old audit and accounting firm, but we've also got one of the largest digital agencies inside Deloitte as well, which which sometimes surprises people. So I'm, I'm glad to help you discover more about what we do. <laughs> I know that that is interesting. Yeah, so for the listeners who might not be familiar with it, you mentioned it's a 150-year-old company. Can you tell us a little bit about Deloitte and what you've been doing there? Sure. Well, I joined Deloitte just over five years ago. I had started my career with a company called Monitor Group, which was founded by Professor Michael Porter and a number of his colleagues out of Harvard Business School in the early 80s. And Monitor was acquired by Deloitte about five years ago. In 2012, the deal, the deal closed. And I had been a strategy practitioner over my career serving, serving clients in the strategy arena. And at Deloitte, I continued that. We put the strategy practices of Monitor and Deloitte together to form Monitor Deloitte. And that has gone exceptionally well over the over the years. And then and then a few years ago, I was asked to take on the role of chief strategy officer for Deloitte for our broader businesses, which encompasses, as we were talking about, audit and tax and, and what we call risk and financial advisory and the consulting practice, which is a mix of a number of different capabilities, including strategy and operations, human capital, technology. And so what we're trying to do is put all those pieces of the puzzle together for our clients who are increasingly dealing with disruptive forces in their businesses. And we think that those challenges are going to take multiple different capabilities in order to solve. So we think we're well positioned to help them with that. This is a very old and very well-established company doing some pretty innovative and modern things. Your client base, it tends to be pretty high-end, large 
large companies, correct? Yeah, we work for a number of the Fortune 1000. We've also got a good base of clients who are their private equivalents. And we have a, actually a, a fairly large set of relationships with a number of emerging growth companies as well. So we believe that it's important to work very closely, either serving those companies as our clients or forming alliances with them, forming alliances with them to be able to deliver services together in the marketplace. Because the notion of providing capabilities to clients through different ecosystems is becoming a part of what many are doing in order to bring capabilities to bear in the world. So I know a lot of people think about working with companies like that, and they immediately think about going in and being full-time employees. But Deloitte specializes in bringing in specialists who work from the outside, right? We're increasing our use of what we call open talent, where we're trying to bring people in as we as we need to. Increasingly, they'll look to bring in capabilities from the outside because there's only so much that a single company can do and do really well. And so if there's someone else in the world that is the best at that thing, why not get them to do it for you if it's not going to be part of your differentiation to your end customers? And so looking at partnering, looking at either leveraging things like open talent or joint venturing in order to do some slice of your business or create some slice of your capability is certainly a pattern that, we see, that we're seeing increasingly with our clients, yes. And in your role as a, with chief strategy officer, I imagine that you're kind of in a position of having to do a lot of talent sourcing in order to do what you do effectively. Certainly what I do within my organization organization. I want to, everyone that, you know, we work with is smart, but I want to get people who are really curious. I want to get people who have high EQ because what we really do is help people make decisions. And a lot of people focus on the decisions part, and that's very analytical and thinking about how do you run all the data to the ground. But that help people part is also super important in the context of making good choices because it's one thing to get a really great answer. It's another thing to try to convince someone to take action or to go from this is really good on paper to actually doing something different and having the capability to be really high in EQ to understand what is the barrier to making a choice is different than just let's get to the, real, the right answer and try to convince someone that we've got the right answer and they should just do what we say. So can you unpack that term EQ for people who might not be familiar with it? Yeah, so the EQ is about emotional intelligence and, and EQ is often contrasted with IQ. And uh, I think most people know what, know what IQ is. You know, it's sort of the, the your core smarts. And EQ is more about how it is that you interact with people, how you understand what makes them tick, how, to use a phrase that one of my mentors recently used, Roger Martin, is how you can meet them where they are how you can meet them where they are. And, and that will help you understand what motivates them. And that will in turn understand better what will help them make a choice. So one of the things I've always loved about the IQ EQ comparison, I think is one of the issues that you bring up in your book about the difference between something that's easy to measure accurately versus something that it has actual validity. Yes. And, and IQ famously is very consistent. It's a great example of reliability. So if people take IQ tests over and over again, they tend to score a very similar result over time. The trouble is, if the test were important and valid, it might be a good predictor of success in the real world. And what we find is there's certainly people
people with low IQs being very successful and people with very high IQs being very successful. So what IQ tests do well about predicting is your ability to take IQ tests. And what people are finding is that emotional intelligence or EQ is a perhaps a far better predictor of one's ability to get by in the real world, but it's very hard to it's very hard to measure with any degree of reliability. So taking different tests over time might score different might score different results but it is valid that having higher EQ does lead to being able to get on in the world a little bit better perhaps but it's harder to put a precise reliable measure over and over again on EQ Absolutely. And as a consultant myself, I've certainly noticed companies do tend to favor things that they can measure accurately and consistently over things that really make a difference for their business. I use the notion of reliability and validity, which is a term from the world of design thinking and was put out by Roger Martin in his book, The Design of Business. I think companies tend to be reliability seekers, right? They want to they want to know that if they do X, Y will be the result. And if I do X again, I will continue to get Y. And organizations tend to prefer things that fall into that pattern. And what we find is that what's going on in the world with technological forces and our, what our clients call and what we hear in the, in the media as disruption, well, X doesn't produce Y anymore. But yet organizations believe because their systems and processes are set up to say, well, what if I did X, what would it produce? And they still say it would produce Y, but then it doesn't actually happen in the in the real world. One of the examples I like to call it when, when looking at this is the pace with which we saw particularly large companies move towards more digital forms of marketing, digital forms of communication as ad skipping technology became more prevalent on television. And so despite the fact that it was very observable that more consumers were recording television shows and skipping ads, we didn't see a very quick set of experiments into the realm of digital communications, which was growing very fast in terms of consumption. We actually didn't see that partially because the marketing mix models that had historically been used were just not set up to really understand what the potential was of those digital forms of communication. And so consequently, because the model still said, you know, the returns on the traditional forms of communication are high, naturally, they, you know, companies still did that. And you had this uh, a bit of a vicious cycle take place. And so now as models are getting a little bit updated, and people are seeing the that there are these other opportunities, we're, you know, of course, seeing more a greater investment into other forms of communication. And sometimes I wonder about things like that, whether or not it was just that things were difficult to measure or whether people realized it would be such a disruption to the agencies and to the consultants who work with these companies, to their business model, that it would be a difficult thing to report on because it would turn their own business upside down. Yeah, that's one of the things that we say in the book that companies need to start to embrace is this notion of impermanence. So embracing impermanence to us means if you put up some very strong structures or processes or jobs, it's going to be a difficult thing to get over if the context around that job ever changes. So we hired a cartoonist and for that particular chapter, he said, I wonder why we've been so slow to embrace new forms of media. And then you see on the door of the different offices, the office labels say VP of cassette tapes and VP of television and VP of Betamaxes and things of that sort. Because if you put, if you make it people's jobs to effectively defend the old way of doing things, because the consequences of embracing something 
something new would mean that my role has to change or my job has to go away, then people are obviously naturally motivated to save what they're doing and not. And companies need to make it simpler for people to reorganize, not around the job that they're in, but around the utility that they could bring and reskill them and things of that sort. And that's just needs to become the norm. And again, that means that even people who are working in big companies and have secure positions constantly need to be looking at the environment and the context that they're operating in. They can't just trust that what they did last year is going to continue to work next year. No, that's that's completely true. And one of the things we see pretty pervasively, it's a mindset challenge, which is the fact that you've been, say, growing at 5% annual top line growth for the last five years gives you zero right to grow 5% next year. It gives you the right to say, okay, well, what have we learned in the last five years about what caused that? And is that still valid? And if we did the same thing, you know, would that result in the same in the same results? But I think the, the challenge is people just assume that there's this inalienable right to growth or revenue that they lose sight of the fact that there are these external external forces like competition or new technologies that might get in the way from them doing that. Part of what we recommend is to really bring a beginner's mind to solutions. Ask whether if I do the same, if I did X, would it create Y? And increasingly the answer is no. And so to bring that beginner's mind, we have to go back and say, well, how could we learn a little bit about what we could do next year that could be the cause of continuing to grow? A beginner's mind is a hard thing to achieve in any field, I think. And people spend you know, decades practicing in order to get to the point where they really can see things as clearly as a beginner. Yeah. And bringing a beginner's mind is is a very difficult challenge. And I think part of it is just being conscious that your own expertise could cause you to be blinded to other possibilities. So, you know, asking questions about why not, what that might be. And I have a three and a half year old daughter, David. And every time I, I have a conversation with her, I'm reminded of what a true beginner's mind is like. And she she reminds me that, you know, if I say, would you like peanut butter on your toast? And, and I start putting almond butter on it. She corrects me. She says, no, that's almond butter, daddy. That's not peanut butter. And I'm like, well, they're kind of the same thing. She's like, no, no, no. One is different than the other. Certainly to a three-year-old, peanut butter and almond butter are a huge difference. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. She's definitely a connoisseur. That's wonderful. There's a concept in computer programming where uh, it's called rubber ducky programming, where you try to take a complex problem. And if you can't figure out how to solve it, you explain it to a little rubber duck sitting on your desktop, trying to get the get to the point where you can clarify the issue as clearly as possible. I love that. I think that that's a terrific thing. In fact, I might try to use my three and a half year old daughter for that process if I can't explain it to her. If she starts asking me questions, I think that's a brilliant way to remind myself what the core elements are. Well, one of the advantages of a three and a half year old daughter is that she can also ask questions back, whereas a rubber ducky can't. Yes, indeed. But I imagine the executives that you normally work with, with the companies that you consult with, they obviously have a lot of questions they ask back. And I think they often ask questions they already know the answers to or think they do. Yeah, I'd say questions are a really important way for executives to lead. And so sometimes, as you, as you described, executives are asking questions where they're in their minds testing their own hypotheses. They're trying to assess the confidence that their counterpart might have in a, in a particular solution. Oftentimes, they might ask questions that unintentionally cause people to behave inconsistent with the actions that they actually want. We hear a lot in the realm of dealing with disruption where, you know, chief executives or other senior executives might say, I want our organizations to, to be able to take more risk. I want our organizations to be more innovative. And then inadvertently, they ask, they ask questions which actually systematically prevent that. So questions like, you know, how will we know this will work? Or 
what will the ROI be on this investment? Or how can you prove that this will that this will satisfy customers? Questions like that, which are actually unintentionally put the risk of being wrong on the person presenting it. And that causes them to try to go and be completely bulletproof about something that they simply can't. So if it's something that's new to the world, I can't prove to you that this new concept that's never been out in the world will work. There's nothing I can do in a laboratory or on an Excel spreadsheet that actually will prove it. I could characterize the risk and say, this is how many customers need to buy in order for the investment to create an attractive return on investment. Or this is what other analogies might exist in the world where customers have done something similar. Or here's a small scale way that we could test this without you know, losing a lot of money or, or learning a lot. But when executives ask questions that cause people to go out and do more work that actually is reliable, like I can go and put on a spreadsheet and show how the numbers add up, but it doesn't necessarily translate into the into the real world. So one of the things that we would suggest is that executives ask more open questions. So what do we have to believe about the world in order to get this ROI or, or which customers will love this and which customers will dislike this? And how could we design a test that would let us know what our customers like more? So really more open-ended. Jeff, my, my co-author, I'll tell you one, one short story, David. Jeff and, and I were working together with an executive in a packaged good company a, a while back. Uh, one of the things that we believe about innovation is that the best innovations happen both within the product, but also surrounding the product using multiple types of innovation. And in this particular case, the company that we're working for had a long history of great product innovation. And they were working on trying to get better at surrounding those terrific products with other features. And what happened in every presidential review would was that the president would come in and would literally go, wow, this is so cool. He'd pick up the product and say, I love this particular feature. And I, I love how the handle is, you know, feels so good in my hand. And I love how, how the edges are perfect. And I love the coloring you've done it. So he'd compliment the product. And what he was unintentionally doing was reinforcing the belief that the product was the only thing that this organization needed to focus on, that that pleased him. And so we took him outside and we said, hey, you can't ask any more questions about the product if you want to actually do what we've all agreed that is really important is get innovation around the product. If you keep asking questions about the product, we are going to fail at what we're trying to do. And the light bulb went on in his head there and he kind of realized it. And to this day, he was asking terrific questions about it and they've been able to make progress on that front. That is such an incredibly difficult mindset switch to get in an executive. The executives are in a scary position because they're trying to build, you know, build a ship in a bottle with chopsticks. They can't go in there and do the work themselves, but they have to understand it enough, but let those people who are working for them innovate and create and do what they're excellent at. That, that's exactly right, David. And, and, and I think what you just said, if I would stand on the shoulders of it a bit and, and say that's the challenge that we wanted to write about. It's the fact that all executives would say today in, in almost pervasively across, across all industries would say, I need to somehow deal with, I need to make my organization disruption-proof, future-proof, take whatever the phrase du jour is on, on that front. And they would say, we really need to do this. But what in general companies find challenging is to create the underlying systems and processes where 
that kind of behavior actually comes naturally, right? And so it's, and what tends to happen is the opposite, where the behavior that gets reinforced in organizations actually the making the safe choice, making the choice that says, I'm going to stay in my job, that I can justify what I did because I can point to the fact that we've always been doing it. And that is a safe choice. It's sort of, you know, and then organizations, not surprisingly, as the collective of those choices, continue to just plot along and not be as innovative as they might be, not be as disruptive as they might be in the in the world or you know the worst case scenario get disrupted by someone who is smaller bringing a beginner's mind more focused on the customer and so what we what we wanted to write about is like how do you make that mind how do you start to permeate that mindset and it's a non-trivial task to be able to do that at organizations of scale no question about it and I, I think one of the hardest things to do is to convince somebody who has a history of succeeding and succeeding and succeeding that they need to do something different yes success is a very challenging very challenging thing to be able to convince someone that they should be doing different things but in fact that's often the best time to try to transform yourself because you're not doing it with necessity I don't remember who said that the best case for change is when the the house is burning down. I would say you might get everyone rowing in the same direction at that point, but it's not a great thing to have to deal with. Perhaps coming from a company with a name like Deloitte, you have the opportunity to get in there and have them believe that you have something worth listening to. The Deloitte brand name certainly conveys a lot of trust, and that's been a great benefit over the last few years of, of being part of the organization. So I'm curious how you came to the lessons that are in this book yourself in your own career. These aren't things that people just notice by happenstance. Well, I, there is a story that I, I talk about in the in the book. So one of the engagements that I worked on as a summer intern, so this is now, it was 1995, so it was 22 years ago. I think I was 20 at the time. I was a student from Queen's University in our, in our Toronto office. And the project that I was asked to be on was one of our clients was thinking about acquiring the coffee and donut chain Tim Hortons in Canada. The coffee and donut chain has since been, was at that time acquired by Wendy's, which was not the company that we were working with. And it's you know been bought and sold and spun off an, a number of times since then. What I learned from that experience was our job was to try to inform our client what we thought Tim Hortons was worth. So what did we do? We tried to figure out Tim Hortons had publicly stated that they wanted to get to 2,000 stores by 2,000. And so we looked at the number of stores that they had. And I tell a funny story in the book about how I needed to literally go to the the library and look in the yellow pages of every city in Canada to try to get the number of Tim Hortons that were actually out there in the marketplace because, you know, I couldn't go on the internet and just find the information. It literally took me days of counting donut stores in, in Toronto. And we had come to the conclusion that it was very challenging for Tim Hortons to achieve its goal because even if they saturated the market and grew share, you know, if to get to 2,000 stores by 2,000 would require a Tim Hortons literally everywhere, as you see. Now, as it turned out, what we missed, what we just missed was Tim Hortons rethought what a store was. They started putting kiosks in gas stations and opening dual stores with, you know, stores inside of stores. And so they just reimagined what it might be to be a store. And they also dramatically took share from their from their competition because they just had a, a far superior product. But it was one of the lessons I've learned over the years was I didn't ask how could they get to 2000. I asked, would they get to 2000? And by that, I was unintentionally just extending what they had done into the future and saying, would that work? 
as opposed to thinking about, well, what might be the ways to get there and what would what would that believe? And so, you know, even if we hadn't got that, that it would have made a difference to the choice at hand. Wendy's was able to pay far more because they offered the potential to expand into the U.S. But that lesson stuck with me. And it was just a lesson to think in, in the realm of possibilities, not in the realm of certainties. And so I've taken that lesson and I've tried to apply it as a move forward. But that's certainly one of the ways I've, I've learned over the years. So I hear that story about Tim Hortons and the goal of getting to 2000 by 2000. And it sounds to me like an arbitrary decision that was made by an executive based on some numbers in a spreadsheet. And it doesn't sound to me like it was realistic and driven by the real users of the Tim Hortons product. I'm curious how you how you would approach that kind of a goal these days. I think the concept of a, what I hear in, in my clients, this concept of a BHAG, a big, hairy, audacious goal, I, I think you've got to be careful. So it's got to be aggressive enough that it causes a mindset shift to say, like, let's take the Tim Hortons thing, for example. If it caused people to say, well, there's there's no way we could ever get to 2000 by 2000 by doing the same stuff we're doing today. But I feel like I can do that, but I've got to break some constraints in order to do it. That's a great outcome, right? Because then they're thinking about, well, how can I continue to satisfy my customers? How can I really delight them? But how can I delight them in a way that allows me to grow faster and achieve these goals? And in that particular case, they did break some really important constraints. If the goal is so aggressive that it is simply not within the realm of possibility, then what it can be is crippling. I think it's the goal and then what you surround it with. So I think if it's a financially oriented goal with not with not a lot of leverage to challenge what it is that you're doing, then I think it can it can lead to the crippling. If it's a stated goal with saying, go tell me if it's a BHAG, but with the accompanying saying is tell me what you need to go do it and you can break some stuff to make it happen then I actually think it can be freeing to the organization because it focuses their attention in the, in the right way. But where it's, it's, where it's a goal without any levers to pull that you can make change in order to do it, then it's basically saying be taller or run faster than you can run. That's just hard for a lot of organizations. I like the way you framed that. And I can definitely see the value of forcing people out of their conventional thinking and saying, what if we tried to go 10 times faster? What would, how would we do that? What would we have to break in order to get there? Yes. And, and I think it's, part of that is just making sure that you've got the organization feels like it can do it and it's not, it's not crippling them. It, often uh, executives are not ready for the feedback that they get when they set out a challenge like that. Well, oftentimes I find that executives just don't get the feedback, right? It, it's it's the what happens outside of the room. So it's the executive would make a goal and, and being a chief executive of any organization, I believe, is a very lonely, lonely job. You know, oftentimes they don't get told or everything is sort of told, framed for the purpose of the person that's telling them something. And so it's, it feels very lonely. And so oftentimes I think the danger is that they don't get the feedback about the nature of the goal or they don't get feedback that the organization doesn't feel like it's doable and then have the opportunity to say, no, here's what I want. Let me clarify and, and iterate on it. It's just the executive said, go do this. And then the organization lines up behind it and tries to do everything that they've always done in order to satisfy the executive's question. When the executive want, said, well, I didn't want you to do that. I actually wanted you to break some stuff. That was the purpose of the goal. And, and so I think getting that feedback is absolutely critical. You raise a very important point, and that communication issue that happens inside of a company that has a hierarchy where that where communication can carry huge weight. 
I'm curious how you get around it in your own role. You have a C-level role at, at a major company. How do you deal with that? I've had the good pleasure of learning something called productive interactions over the years. And that was a concept that was invented by a Harvard professor named Chris Argyris, who was taught to me by a number of people over the years, Roger Martin, Jamie Higgins, Jennifer Riel. Roger and Jennifer recently wrote a book which was connected to the concept of it called Creating Great Choices. And the concept of productive interactions is a mechanism to bring your authentic self to conversations. And so what often happens is that people are thinking one thing, but they say another thing. And what that causes is two things to happen. One is they aren't really listening to the other person very well. And they're just trying to figure out what it is that they want to say to advance their own point of view. And so there's a very simple phrase that was taught to me. And now I teach along with a number of others at Deloitte, which is just this, just if you say the following thing to your, to yourself, when you start every conversation that might make the conversation go better, which is I have something important to say, I have an important point of view, but I might be missing something. Right. And what that causes you to do is say, like, I'm not going to not say the things that I think are important or bring my point of view to the conversation, but that I might be missing something should cause you to also want to understand the point of view of the other person who also has something important to say. So in, in conversations that go badly, it's typically because people aren't inquiring about the point of view of the other. They're saying, I believe this. And the other person is saying, well, I believe that. And they're never actually exploring their models about the world that's leading them to that conclusion. If you just say that to yourself, the next time you're going into a contentious conversation, that might cause you to seek to understand what's leading the other person to believe what they're saying. I actually think that in, in the realm of the political discourse that we're seeing in this country, that would be a fantastic thing for, for people to start to do. Yeah, it, it's true. Uh, unfortunately, with you know, the balance of power that you have in these kinds of conversations, even if you do go in when, with a genuine interest in hearing what the other person has to say, you're putting yourself at risk when you're talking to somebody who is in a different position than you are in the hierarchy. Yeah. And what I find is that there's almost never a bad time to ask a question of understanding. And so saying things like, say a little bit more about that, or can you help me understand why, what you see in the world that's causing you to believe that. So effectively asking that person to, you know, walk them through their logic for reaching that conclusion, for saying it, for, to be interested in it, will help you understand. And then you could say, ah, I'm seeing something different. Let me share with you what it is that I'm seeing that's different. And then we can reconcile whether or not we're seeing different things or we're drawing different conclusions. But it's almost always asking a question reduces the tension in the conversation. And so I've been trying increasingly to use that in the conversations I'm part of. You've had a successful career yourself inside of your, your organization. You were, you were acqui-hired and you've risen to a high level. I'm really curious, how did you see your career going and how did you manage to, to take yourself along this path? It's interesting. There's, I, I'm in the process of writing an article to accompany the book about my own career path. And we have a chapter in the book that as we talk about embracing impermanence, we talk about the folly of career paths. You know, in, in most companies now, if you go on a recruiting, they'll say, this is where you'll be in 15 years if you stay with us. And it's kind of like, who can predict where, what the world is going to be like in 15 years with the technological forces that we're looking at and what jobs are going to be like and what the nature of work might be like. And so 
having something that is, you know, that creates a permanence about a career path, I, I think is a, at least when I advise my, my mentees today and the people that I coach in their careers, I tell them, don't worry about your career path. Don't focus endlessly on what job you want to attain in a certain amount of time because it's just a waste of energy. I think it's just a waste of energy. What you should focus your energy on differently is what are you learning? What is it that you're learning in the, in the next period of your life, whatever that relevant period is for you? And oftentimes in, at senior levels of your career, it might be a little bit longer. I think that when people are starting off their career, it's probably six months to a year of a chapter. But what are you focused on learning and developing in yourself that would give you lots of options for, the, for whatever you do next? And that's a better way to manage your career than to mindlessly focus on it. If I went back and looked at myself and said, if I was sitting in that summer intern shoes in 1995, what would I be doing? The answer would have been, well, I know exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to work at Monitor for two years, and then I'm going to go to not just business school. I'm going to go to Harvard Business School because this was a company started by Michael Porter. And then I'm going to come back and I'm going to live in Toronto. I'm going to have two kids and, and then life will just be happy. I'll become a partner and that'll be that. And as it turned out, it couldn't have happened any differently. I stuck around a little bit longer than, a, than two years, and then I applied to business school. And I think, David, I was the world's worst business school applicant in, in the history of it. I applied, to, I applied to Harvard and got rejected. I applied to Wharton and got rejected. I applied to Stanford, and I got waitlisted. That was great. And then I got rejected. And I had quit my job on the pretense of I will, I'll get in somewhere because that's what people were telling me. Don't worry, you'll get in somewhere. And then I was taking vacations and I was like, okay, well, what do I do now? I don't have a job because I quit and I don't have a place in a business school class. And so I was lucky enough to network through Monitor to become the director of strategy at Forbes magazine, which is what moved me to New York. And then I decided to apply to business school again and got rejected again by Harvard and got rejected again by Stanford. And I applied to Columbia because I started to get to know them being in New York City. And I got rejected by Columbia. And then I got told by my boss, it's like, you can apply one more time, but that's it. I'm not writing any more, you know, <laughs> I'm not writing any more recommendation letters for you. And I applied to the, the January term at Columbia and I finally got in and I'd really wanted to go. And it was a, a great experience. And then there was that kind of serendipity at, you know, later on in my career, I went back to monitor and I thought I was going to work primarily in the media space, given my Forbes experience. And then I got a great opportunity at a P&G because I got, you know, our firm got to know the chief marketing officer there, Jim Stengel, who had a fantastic question for us that he's talked about in his book, Grow. And those kind of things you had to take advantage of when you were given opportunities to learn. And then who would have thought that years later, Deloitte would acquire Monitor? And then even the opportunity to be the chief strategy officer was not something that I was looking for. It wasn't something that I had looked as a, as a next step, but because I had worked particularly well on the client front, they thought that maybe I could do this and I got asked. And so I, I think that life is just filled with creating opportunities and putting yourself in the position to get asked to do something, but then also taking advantage when you get asked uh, or when something interesting comes along. But it's always for me been about 
what you can learn. But if I would go back to that, that little kid who was the intern, I thought I had a plan, but I probably wasted a lot of emotional energy just trying to create it in those moments where I was not doing the things that I thought I was going to do. It sounds to me like some of the secret sauce in that might have been using your network effectively. There's not a lot of unemployed MBA applicants get to be the director of strategy at Forbes. I owe a ton to a couple of people to Jonathan Goodman and, and Ralph Judah. These are the, the folks who I knew that knew the folks at Forbes and connected me to, to them. And one of my mentors always said, if you do good work, that will create good opportunities. And so I think doing good work and, and doing favors for others, being that person who always answers the phone and answers the call means that at some point, if you ever need help, people will be there for you. It does sound like mentorship has been a big part of, of what's worked well for you in your career. I'm curious if you could tell me a little bit more about how you established and took advantage of those mentorship relationships. The first bit is to be a good mentee. And one of the, the person who I look for a lot of mentorship today is a fellow by the name of Roger Martin. He was recently named the world's leading management thinker by the Thinkers 50. He's the author of playing to win. I, I knew him when he was at Monitor Group back when I started my career, but he, he left shortly after I joined to become the dean of the Rotman School of Business. And then we rekindled our relationship. I look back probably around five years ago where we started to spend more time together. And what I've just always done is try to be a good mentee, ask lots of questions, say thank you for being a good mentor, just spend time. Don't don't ask for too much, but really relish the opportunities to run stuff by him, ask him what he thinks. And I think a lot of mentors are are motivated by just being a good mentor. Like there's an intrinsic motivation to it. And so I think if you're if if I was giving advice to people who have mentors, is be a good mentee. Like ask good questions, you know, respect people's time, but then people really will want to mentor you and they'll want to give you, give you advice. And, and so Roger's been particularly good on, on those dimensions. For me, my encouragement is for folks to find who works for them. Sounds like it works well for you being mentored by people, not just within the organization you were working for, but across multiple organizations. Yeah, I, look, I've got great mentors at Deloitte and people who have guided me, but I, I think the challenge of getting mentored inside your organization will always be they're going to try to help you in the same frame that what might have made them successful. And one of the benefits of getting outside mentorship or coaching is that you have someone who just comes with a different perspective. And I really valued my the short time I was at Forbes. And there were two folks there that were really important to me, Jim Berrien and Kendall Crolius, who I just learned a ton from in how they approach their careers. And they've always just given me a different perspective on the world because they came from very different backgrounds, very different set of jobs that got them to where they were. And so they've got a, just a different lens on the world. And the more lenses you get, you know, it actually enables you to come back to that thing that we said is that enables you to bring a beginner's mind. Because if you only have a, a narrow lens on the world about this is what it takes to be successful, then you only see possibilities within that frame. And by talking to more people, by getting different points of view, it just opens your you to the, possi to the possibilities that you just wouldn't have thought of. And so for that reason, I think getting coaching from the outside is really, is really key. Absolutely. And actually, you mentioned coaching. Did you ever actually work with coaches? So I, I've only recently started working with a coach. We always had good training over the years, and, and most of my coaching has been on the job with the people that I've learned, but I've recently been working with a, with, with a coach, and that's been really, really eye-opening for me. That's been a great way for someone to tell me 
okay, here's what others are experiencing you as. So they did a 360 and it's this person's job to now tell me all the stuff that I may not see or maybe maybe I'm looking past. And so it's been a tremendous experience. I'm curious how you found a coach to, that you thought would be able to help you. I was assigned one. So there's a program There's a program at Deloitte that I'm part of that has coaching as a key part. I probably wouldn't have sought it out, to be perfectly candid. It wasn't something that I had that I, I had considered, but I, I've really valued it. My coach, Marilyn, has been, has been terrific. And I've asked for her to continue because I've, I've been learning a lot. And it's caused me to try different things in the executive setting and just to see how they, just to see how they work. So did the coaching come before you decided to write this book? So the coaching came before. To some extent, the coaching was a little bit of the cause for the book. And so there was a, as we sort of looked at what I was doing, one of the things that we thought would be interesting was to do some more writing, take some of the thinking that I had been doing and, and try to put it on paper. But that a book wasn't, wasn't what I was going for. What ended up happening was I saw Jeff and Jeff and I have been friendly and worked together for a number of years. And I've always admired Jeff is a prolific writer. So Jeff can write really, really well. And I've admired his writing style. And I said to him as we were in a, in a workshop one day, I said, hey, we should, we should write something together. And you know, he said, well, do you want to just do a guest blog on my blog one day? And I said, no, I had something a little bit more weighty in mind. And again, through the book is as much about serendipity as anything else. Jeff had been talking to a publisher and we got discussing some ideas and he said, well, why don't you go and pitch me that? And that was about a year ago. And we had our first whiteboard session in March of last year and said, well, what are we going to, what are we going to write about? And we put it up on a whiteboard and said, okay, let's go figure out how to put that into a table of contents and take it to our publisher. And, and then it ended up here. So we did it in a very short period of time. That is a very short period of time to write a book, especially when you're co-writing a book, because there are some additional challenges that come with that. I'm really curious how you organized that. Jeff was such a terrific partner to write with. It was a relatively simple process that it worked because we trusted each other. And so we outlined the book together. And the book is really written in a way that each chapter can be written separately. So it wasn't a, you know, it wasn't like a novel where you can't parse out the chapter. So we've got seven different playbooks that we want to blow up so that they're writable separately. So what we said was, okay, you take this chapter, I'll take this chapter. And we started doing the first round of the book. And we said, we're going to have all of it done in the first six weeks. And we didn't take six weeks, but it took, you know, it took eight weeks. And we said, well, okay, now let's switch and we'll rewrite each other's chapters so that we're, we're sort of smoothing out the voice and we're both adding our own ideas and we're testing to see whether or not we agree with everything that went on on the piece of paper. And then we kind of stepped back and then we said, okay, is there anything that we want to redo? And we said no, but we, we sort of took the last few weeks to, to clean it up. But for me, this was a, I know because I know that this is about mental processes and how do you take something from ideas to action. And so for me, the, the huge learning that I, I had never written anything before, I was not an author, I had done a lot of public speaking, but not a lot of, a lot of writing. And so this was a new muscle for me to create. And I'm an extreme extrovert. And so I don't get my energy from sitting alone at a, at a computer screen. And so that was super challenging for me. So the tool that I use to try to be productive, because as we talked about earlier, I've got a three and a half year old daughter. And as someone who wants to spend their energy at work and then come home and spend good time with, with my daughter and be a present father, I said, I have to be productive when I write. And that wasn't something I was used to. 
And so I found this app called Flow State where you type. And if you stop typing for five seconds, it erases everything that you've done previously. <laughs> wow. And so, yeah. So it's like a forcing mechanism to get to a good beat it up first draft. And so it was really helpful for me because what I said, is said, if I'm going to write the book, I, I don't have a lot of time to do it. I'm going to do And I, I said at this time slot, one to four on Saturdays and Sundays when my daughter naps. That was my writing time. And I was very thankful that my daughter, who was three when I was writing it, st still continued to keep napping because this is about the time in a child's life where they stop napping. I was very, I was like, oh, if she stops napping, this is never going to happen. So I was very grateful that that was the case. That's excellent. So, you know, conveniently, you were able to find the time to do this writing, but it's very difficult to get the discipline to write effectively sometimes. We had a wonderful person, Megan Solom, managing everything around the book, dealing with our publisher, dealing with internal processes at Deloitte. And she was like, this chapter needs to be done this week. And by her creating a deadline, plus time boxing it was a way for, for at least me to get over the fact that I just wasn't very, I wasn't a very accomplished writer. I couldn't sit down and just, just get something out on paper. And so I, I tried to learn and hack the process. And so between Saturdays and Sundays from one to four, I, I did that pretty religiously. And then as we started getting and required a little bit more time, I, I started hacking my, my sleep a bit, which I've come to believe in eight hours of sleep every night. And I just saw that I was being useless in the evenings. Like I just wasn't very mentally aware. I wanted to spend time with my family. I was drained from the day. And so I started going to bed really early. I would be in bed before 10 most nights and I was up at five and between five and seven, I would be able to get an hour's worth of writing in, do a little bit of work and thinking about the day for work. And, and that turned out to be a very effective way for me to be more productive in my in my own day. I just I came to the realization that I wasn't being I was working at night, but I wasn't being productive at night. And this just became a very productive time for me. So it's kind of like 2000 by 2000. You set yourself a big goal that was outside of your normal comfort zone and you had to figure out a way to make it happen. That's true. And if I if I give Jeff a ton of credit here, I wanted to, to go to our publisher and say, we need another month or two. We need another month or two because it'll make the book. It'll make the book better. And Jeff said, I want to be done with this. We're going to get this out and that's the deadline and we're going to feed ourselves our own dog food about minimum viable moves and we're going to get the book out there and it's going to be great, but we've got to finish in December. And Jeff was a great forcing mechanism on that. It sounds like having Megan, I think, was working as a producer for your book. That's a different approach and not, not everybody uses a producer during the writing process. Well, I was lucky enough to have Megan as uh, part of my team at in my chief strategy officer role. And so her job as my chief of staff was to just generally keep everything associated with that organization, the trains running on time, especially as it related to where I was focusing my energy. So it's, a, it's something that she's really amazing at and she applied to the book. And I would recommend if anyone was trying to write something to have someone produce it in that way. It's always helpful to have other people involved because then you've got some accountability to someone else. I think writing is a very lonely thing if you're doing it by yourself and you suffer to the very human trait of procrastination and, and deadlines are a beautiful thing. And, and so there are, I find that there are very few people who have enough internal motivation. So that's a great hack if you can just use someone, use someone else to be accountable to them or or a deadline. And I know that a lot of people, they may not have a you know, chief of staff for their organization, but they may have a virtual assistant, or they may even have a colleague or a friend who's willing to act in that role for them. Yeah, just a friend to say, you got to hold me accountable that I get you this chapter 
by this date. Or, you know, what I've been telling folks is just commit to it on social media, right? And and if you go out and post something on your social media that say, I am going to get this done, then you may not ever get asked that you are going to get it done by anybody on your social media, but you'll feel guilty if you if someone does ask you later. And so just that public commitment is a is a terrific way to motivate behavior. That's very cool. Do you think you're going to keep up with the writing as well? I'm going to take a break from it for a while, to be honest. I think this was a fun learning experience and, and maybe we'll, you know, Jeff and I will decide to do, we'll decide to do something else. But for now, we've got a lot of work to do at, in my job at Deloitte. I want to spend my time serving clients. So I'll probably take a break from writing for a little bit, but I wouldn't say no necessarily again, if the right thing comes along, but it was fun to have tried once. Well, Detonate, it's going to be out very soon, and it's been a real pleasure chatting with you. Thank you for joining us on Hack the Process. Thank you, David. It's been a real fun conversation, and I look forward to talking again, perhaps. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process. Leave a review for the show on iTunes and visit hacktheprocess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening.